You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. John chapter 12, that's where we're going to be this morning, John chapter 12. As, as we open up the Word of God, uh, I want to pray briefly for that specifically. Uh, as, as you uh, seek to open the Word with me and hear what the Lord would say, let's pray to Him and ask His blessing upon uh, this part of our time together. Father in heaven, we are grateful uh, to be recipients of your word, to be uh, beings that you've made to be able to hear and to listen, to understand, to believe. Uh, thank you for creating us with souls that can be drawn to you and, and bodies someday that you will raise up for eternity, either to life or to judgment. God, we are grateful uh, to be humans. We are grateful to be uh, your creatures. Uh, and we are grateful that you've spoken to us. And we pray that as we open your word, this inerrant, this infallible guide and, and word from you that you've given to us, we pray that we would have ears to hear it, um, that we would have hearts that understand it, that by your Holy Spirit, that, that he would work in us to believe this, to apply it, to, to treasure what is said in your word and to see what it says about you and about us about your son Jesus. I pray that you would give me clarity in my words and that you give us uh, a unity as we gather around your word together. We pray this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Amen. We're at the very end of John chapter 12 today. We're going to start in John chapter 12, verse 36. That's where we left off last Sunday. We're going to go all the way through the end of the chapter, John 12, verse 50, uh, by the end of our time together this morning. Uh, And this is a really pivotal turning point in the, in the book of John. Uh, if you have studied through the book of John, you may have heard this before, but since John wrote this, as people have read it and thought about it, it seems that John wrote this, what we call a book of John, almost in two books. Uh, and the, what we're going to read together is going to be the very end of the first book that people will often call the book of signs. This is John recording the early part of Jesus' ministry, uh, his coming into the world, but then those few years where he was doing sign upon sign upon sign publicly amongst his fellow Jews. And the, then the second book is called, the people will call the book of glory. Uh, we saw hints of that even last Sunday as we're getting near the end of this first book. That Jesus, as he gets into what we call chapter 13, it's as if there's going to be this new book of glory where Jesus has moved from doing signs to being glorified, to being lifted up, like he said last week on the cross. And his glory is going to be seen far more than it was with any of those signs. It's going to be his glory is going to be seen on the cross and in the resurrection. And so where we're at today is if you if you believe that, that John was thinking through kind of two books. This, what we read today is going to be the very end of book one, the book of signs. And it's going to be like a transition. It's, to, it's going to be to try to propel us forward to want to read this book of glory, to read about what happens as Jesus is nearing that final day of life, as he's crucified and as he's raised from the dead. And so if you are a book reader, or maybe even if you watch shows or watch movies that are in a series, you'll know that when you come to an end of a chapter 
or you come to the end of a book that's in a series or to the end of a movie that's part of a trilogy or something, when there's a part of a story that comes after it, usually the director or the author tries to build some sort of suspense or like leave you hanging a little bit, have some things unresolved at the end of that book, the end of that chapter to get you to move forward. And we're going to see John does just that. There's going to be this tension that, that he has present as we read through the end of chapter 12 that's going to propel us hopefully uh, for the weeks and months ahead to read on into the next book to see what God, what happens see what God does there and so what we the tension we're going to see in in this scene comes from this that Jesus has been for several years doing a public ministry he's been doing signs we'll talk about those but now he's entered into Jerusalem we saw a couple passages ago that he's entered this last week of his life he's entered into the city of Jerusalem and, and the, the crowds welcomed men to Jerusalem, but we're already seeing that they're starting to turn on him. Uh, that it's no longer the Jews who are seeking him out, but it was Greeks, non-Jews, that are seeking him out, we saw last week. And the tension is going to be there that though there have been so many signs given to the Jews, we're going to see in this text that they are hardened, that they're blinded. They don't see Jesus as he's showing himself very clearly to be. They don't see it. Yet we're going to be reminded in this passage, nonetheless, he's still, even though they're blinded and hardened and not believing, he's still offering the gift of eternal life. He's still offering forgiveness to them, even though they continue to reject him. There's this tension of unbelief, but the offer of eternal life. And so I want to read this passage. We'll read the whole thing together, verses 36 to 50, and then we'll walk back through it and see two main points. But follow along with me in your chapter, or your copy of the Word of God. We'll start in John chapter 12, verse 36. This, is, this verse is going to be the end of a, a conversation Jesus had uh, that is going to segue into John's comments about what was going on. So this, this begins with the words of Jesus. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Then he quotes Isaiah. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, and then he quotes him again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, and then what follows the rest of the words of Jesus, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words 
has a judge, the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This is the word of God, and may he bless the preaching of his word. This, this text, we could easily divide into two parts. We'll, we'll look first at verses 36 to 43, and then second, we'll look at verses 44 to verse 50. Uh, there's two sections here, and, and the, the way I would phrase what we see here, the tension that John is developing and that we see unfold here is this. I would say in these two ways, and these would be the two points, is that the Lord hardens some, but invites all to believe in his son. And these are some hard things. The, the Lord hardens some, but invites all to believe in his son. We'll start with that first statement that we see in the first section, that the Lord hardens some. Uh, that, that language is very clearly used as you get down into verse 40 and following, uh, that, that, that the Lord hardens them. But it starts, I would note this, because we'll come full circle to this, in verse 36, it starts, that verse starts with Jesus making an invitation to all of these fellow Jews that are there around him to believe in him. He, he's called himself the light over and over and over again. And he says very clearly to them from the get-go, while you have the light, believe in the light. He, he's offering this to them free and clear to all of them. And he says, if you do, if you believe in me, if you believe in the light, he says, you may become sons of light. So from the get-go, you see right at the onset, there's this offer, there's this invitation that Jesus is making once again to, the, to his fellow Jews to believe in him, to, to come to faith in him. But it quickly turns uh, to this ominous note. Like, there's this odd transition that, that maybe doesn't feel like how we normally think about Jesus. When you read the second half of verse 36, Jesus has just made this invitation, believe in me. He's told it to them over and over. But as he's getting to the end of his, of, of his time here on earth before the cross, we've started to see some indicators of this, that he is starting to realize that the Spirit is not going to do a massive work amongst his people until after the cross, until after he's lifted up, after he ascends into heaven. And so there's this, this, this strange thing in our minds that happens at the end of verse 36, where John records that after Jesus said this, after he invites them to believe in him, he departed and hid himself from them. And so there's this strange thing. He's offered life once again. He's offered to them to become true children of God, not just Jews, but to become real children of God. And then after he says that, he physically departs from them, and then hides from him. And that may be in part just to be able, because the next couple chapters are going to be him having extended time with his disciples only. It could be for that. But it seems like there's a bigger sense here too, based on what follows that. In some sense, Jesus is moving away from them. Jesus is trying to, in a sense, be mysterious. Or Later we'll see that he blinds them. He hardens them in their unbelief. He, in a sense, is hiding himself from them even spiritually. 
But John jumps then to verse 37, and this is where we start to get into the meat of this passage. And what is really going on, it's perplexing that all of these fellow Jews of Jesus who'd been given all these promises, who'd been told with clarity what this Messiah was going to be like, what John says has happened by this point in the story, verse 37, is that though Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. If you go back, if you've been through the book of John with us, or if you want to take time and go back and read through it yourself to get up to this point, you're going to see John very clearly talks about sign after sign after sign that Jesus had performed. These sometimes often, or I think all of them, miraculous things that he had done to show his power, to, to try to point them to who he was and point them to their heavenly father. If you, if you remember, he turned water into wine. In John chapter 2. He healed a nobleman's son from far away. In John chapter 4. Simply by speaking words. He healed a man who had been lame and unable to walk for years. In John chapter 5. In John chapter 6. He had fed thousands upon thousands of people. With just a little bit of bread and fish. In John chapter 9. He had healed a man who had been born blind. He healed him and gave him his sight back. And then for the the granddaddy of them all, John chapter 11, as it's getting closer to his time to die on the cross, when his friend Lazarus had died, he waited till he died and then came there and then told a dead man to come out of his tomb, and he did. Like Jesus had done sign upon sign upon sign, and many of the people there in Jerusalem would have been at some of those. And seen it. Or they definitely would have heard about these things. These not just rumors. But true stories of these miraculous signs. Jesus had done to show them who he is. To show them the, the power that he had. The authority that he had. And that Jesus is inviting them over and over. To believe in him. To trust in him. To come to him in faith. But John records for us. That though he had done all these signs. They still did not believe in And he quotes Isaiah chapter 53, a wonderful chapter from the Old Testament from hundreds of years before where Isaiah had prophesied about this very thing. God knew it was going to happen. God knew that his people would not believe in the Messiah that would come because Isaiah had asked rhetorically, who's believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And what Isaiah had seen in advance, we, we know through what John says, is that he knew, he anticipated that when the Messiah came, that God's people were, by and large, not going to believe in him. That they weren't going to, to come to him in trust and come to him in faith. And that he would have to give up his life. And so this was God's plan from the beginning, was that when the Messiah came, when the light was shining, that people would not believe it. They did not believe in him, John says. And this is instructive to us because I I would want us, even as God's people today, to know this and hear this very clearly, that people need, you needed, but people need more than just information in order to have their heart changed. These people had all the information that could be given to them. There was supernatural miracles done right before their eyes and blind people seeing and dead people coming to life and Jesus saying, I'm sent from God, trust in me, and they didn't. 
Like, we ought to not ever be fooled and think, if I can just get my friend who doesn't believe the right information, if I can just show him the right things, if I can just give him enough evidence by how I live my life and God's power in my life, that surely they'll believe. How could they not believe? Like, we, we, we like to think that we have this ability to just get all our information right and be persuasive and winsome and show them the proof and, and just get them to believe just by giving them facts and giving them information. But information does not change the human heart. The spirit changes the human heart. And this, is, this is not just a problem with the Jews in Jerusalem in A.D. 30. Or AD 33 or whatever time, whatever year this was. This is a human problem. This is, we can see all we want to see. God could, could open the heavens and he did and would speak from heaven audibly and did all these things and people still didn't believe and we're not any different. But you go back even earlier in the Bible to, to God's people back in Deuteronomy. Look up Deuteronomy chapter 29. This is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before what happened with Jesus. Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 2 to 4, is speaking to this generation of people, this group of people who either had been born and seen this stuff happen as kids, uh, the, the exodus and the parting of the Red Sea and the provision of food from heaven that would land on the ground every day. They'd seen all of these things, and this is what Moses said to them. It says that Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants. That's talking about the plagues and all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Like the human heart needs something more than just evidence, more than just facts. We need God to breathe life into us, to take those. Those facts are important. We must hear the good news of Jesus. But it's that alone is not what's powerful. The gospel is powerful because the Spirit of God works and gives us faith in our hearts. And we need to remember that as we share the faith with our friends, as we share the faith with our children, as we need to share facts with them. We need to share them information. Show them the Bible. Show them what it says. Show them your changed life. But we must rely on the Holy Spirit in our evangelism and pray that he would work in their hearts, that he would give them faith, that he would give them repentance. And we must remember that our faith, if we have it, is a result of God's work on our heart. It's not because we were smart enough to connect all the dots and that when when someone told us about Jesus and showed us the truth about him, that we were the ones smart enough to believe it and we were the ones humble enough to, to, to bow our knee to Jesus. That is not true. Like we are people of faith because God changed our hearts. He took that evidence and broke us. He took that evidence and gave us faith in his son, Jesus. And so Jesus uh, has done all these signs, but the people, the fellow Jews, by and large, are not believing in him. And this is perplexing because if you think about John, when he's writing this, just a couple decades after Jesus would have gone back into heaven, this would have been a big challenge to him. I guess he's starting to go to, to people who weren't Jews and tell them about Jesus. 
say, hey, you guys, he's the son of God who, who God had promised the Jews long ago. And he came as their Messiah, but he's died for all of us and been raised from the dead so that all of us might receive forgiveness of sins. You could see people scratching their heads and thinking, are you sure about that? Because I'm pretty sure even all the Jews in Jerusalem don't even buy that he's the Messiah. Like, they don't believe that. Like, why should I believe that? And John is trying to, to make it clear to us that from the beginning, God has known when this, Isaiah knew it, God certainly knew it, uh, that when this time came and Jesus did all these signs, that belief would not come to the Jews at that time. That there would be a, an unbelief in their hearts. It did not surprise God. He planned it that way. Verse 39 shifts into a gear that gets a little bit even harder for us to understand. Because in verse 37, John records that even though Jesus did all of these signs, they did not believe in Jesus. Verse 39 says something that's even more hard for us to wrap our minds around. He says, therefore, they could not believe. That is a weighty state. I have chewed on that a ton this week. That, that John is recording that they could not believe. And he, he quotes Isaiah again, this time from Isaiah chapter 6, and, and says that he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. If you follow the pronouns through here and, and what follows, it seems like this is even speaking of Jesus doing. That he's blinded their eyes. He's hardened their hearts. And that, that as a result, there's an inability for them to see, to understand, to turn, and to receive the healing that he's offering to them. And that is perplexing. That is hard to understand. It, it made me uh, think a lot this week. Because we rightfully tend, when we think of eyes being blinded, and hearts being hardened towards Jesus. Who do we think of as doing that typically? Satan. That's biblical, right? Like you read 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Paul says that Satan, this is what he says explicitly, blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That is what Satan does, Right? He blinds people. He, he keeps people from seeing the glory of Jesus. Yet John records very clearly for us here that Jesus does that. that this, saint, this is where this, this tension builds. Like Jesus is inviting people, his fellow Jews, to believe. But then he is hardening their hearts. He is blinding their eyes and, and keeping them from doing that very thing. And this is a subject that, that would take far more time than what we have today, but, but I, w I will say this, because John does not explain this nicely for us and tie it up in a bow in this passage, but in thinking of why would Christ do this? Like, why would he blind the eyes of his people and harden the heart of his people? The simplest explanation, I, I would say, is because it was necessary in order for the cross to take that his people had to reject him pretty much wholesale in order for the cross to actually take place and for him to be offered up as a sacrifice for our sins. But if you press into a deeper level, I, I think this text is clear that Jesus is not blinding the eyes of people who are trying to see him. He's not hardening the hearts of people who are, whose hearts beat for him and, and love him and, and want to serve him. And Jesus is like, uh-uh, I'm hardening that heart. 
That is, that is not what you see happening here. We already were told they did not believe in him. Right? We were explicitly told that. They, they were rejecting him. The light that they'd been given, they were rejecting. They were walking away from him. They were refusing to believe in him. And it is those people, in this passage at least, that Jesus is blinding further. That he is hardening further. People call it a judicial hardening. It's a judgment of Jesus upon these people who are rejecting him. And Jesus is solidifying them harder into the blindness and to the hardness of heart that they've already chosen for themselves. That's already been evident in their life. A.W. Pink, a, a theologian much smarter than me with an awesome name, A.W. Pink, uh, he, he said this. He said about this very text, he said, it, and I would agree with him, it needs to be carefully noted here that those who, whose eyes God blinded and whose heart he hardened were men who had deliberately scorned the light and rejected the testimony of God's own son. So Jesus has sensed and experienced the, the rejection of his people, and he is hardening them further into that path. He, he, he is hardening their hearts. He is blinding their eyes from seeing the truth and, and receiving the offer that he has offered them over and over and over and still offers to them. And we see we could struggle with this. I used to really struggle with this idea of God hardening people. You see it in Scripture repeatedly at different points in time. I used to really struggle with that and think, that, that feels like people don't have freedom now. Like you're locking them into this path, God, to, to, to go down the road of unbelief even further and further and further. And the assumption in my mind was that they didn't want to go there. Like that, that they they were wanting to be on this path, but God was just barricading them in on this path. And that was what felt unfair in my mind and in my heart. But you see, even in this next section of verses, that people always do what they want to do. Like people always believe what they want to believe. The Lord does not press anybody on a path towards himself that don't want to be on it. And he, he doesn't press and keep people on a path toward destruction that don't want to be on it. When he moves in our hearts, our affections are stirred that same way. Like we do precisely what we want to do. Did you see that in verses 41 and following, 42 and following? There's this group of authorities that John talks about in verses 42 and 43. And for a second you think like, well, some people are getting it. Like some people are believing because John says, nevertheless, Many even of the authorities believed in him. That seems good, right? We think, yes, there's this core that gets it. But then he said, listen to the internal language he uses about what's going on in their heart and how their belief is not true belief. It's not repentant faith. It's not faith. It's, it's just factual belief. Because he, listen to what he says about their hearts. He says, for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. So there's fear. And then he says, and for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. There's, there's this internal fear in them of being rejected and losing places of authority. And there's this in, internal love that they have for the glory that comes from man, this recognition and praise that they get as leaders. And they don't want those things to go away. That's what's going on in their hearts. And they are believing just factually. 
They're, they're believing the facts that Jesus has done so many signs. The evidence is tipping in favor. I don't know how I can deny anymore that he is supernaturally powered, that, that maybe he is the son of God. But their hearts do not want to believe in him in a saving sense, in a sense of resting their souls upon him and giving their lives to him. But it's because they want to. Their hearts are engaging, and God is not pressing them on this road to reject him, per se, but they want to reject him. They w- refuse to confess their faith in him. And I would just say, a, as a short word of application to us from this section, may we not be numbered among these types of people. This is a huge temptation when we grow up in church, when we're around church, when we grow up around Winona Lake, when we're at Christian colleges, when we hear the good news of Jesus and the facts about him and we've been told all the signs that he did. Many of us believe the facts about him. Like we've been told it enough, we've received enough apologetics training and things like that that we can't deny it's true. But we don't want it to be true. Like we don't want, we're embarrassed to confess him to our family, to confess them to our neighbors, to say we're, we, we love the glory that comes from accolades from this life and we don't want to be embarrassed. We don't want to have people think things about us and so we hide our faith. We, we believe the facts, but our hearts are not engaged in a saving way, in a loving way towards him. And John, though he uses the word belief here to talk about these people, this is not a belief he's commending. It's belief he's trying to steer us away from that only believes the facts and has not been changed at a heart level to love the Lord and to bend our knee to him, to to celebrate him and praise him and not be embarrassed about who knows it. But these people were so afraid to be rejected, to to be kicked out of the synagogues, to lose their places socially, to be embarrassed, maybe intellectually. The people are like, how could you believe in this carpenter and these common people, what they're believing? Jesus said that if we deny, Jesus said this, if we deny him before others, he will deny us before his heavenly father. That is a weighty thing that you see lived out right here. John Calvin said that earthly honors may be called golden shackles binding a man. And that happens in our lives. We don't want to give up our place in society and in our school and in our workplace and we're embarrassed of Christ. May that never be us. Maybe people who are proud to confess our faith in him and say, I am his. He bought me with a price and I don't care who knows it. We see that the Lord hardens some. We see it come in different flavors and, and ways with these people. Some who just reject him wholesale and some who just believe the facts but refuse to engage him in a trusting, faith-filled way. But you see as this passage concludes in this last paragraph that though the Lord and even Jesus himself blinds and hardens some, he nonetheless is inviting all. He's inviting everyone to still believe in him, to to turn to him and receive the healing that he offers and that he only can give to them. This, this passage there has many, if you think of threads that John has kind of woven through his book so far, all of them come poking through here in this little section where he kind of brings them all, all to a head. He talks about his unity with God the Father. Did you see that in 44 and 45? He says, if you believe in me, you believe in him who sent me. And he says, if you see me, that you see the one who sent me. 
And so we've seen that over and over with Jesus, him saying, me and the Father are one. Like, and he's going to say it again even in this passage. I just say what he tells me to say. Like my words are his words. Like there's no fraction. If you reject me, you reject him. There, there's not middle ground. Like you can have one without the other. That thread gets pulled through. You see in verse 46 that he talks again about himself as light, that he's come into the world as light so that he might not have people remain in darkness anymore, but draw them out of that light and come to him to become sons of light, like he said earlier. He said that he's come to bring salvation and eternal life. You see both of those phrases in John's gospel, and you see them again here, that he came, he says, at least the first time that he came to the world, not to judge, but to save, to bring salvation. But you see, and Jesus has said this repeatedly, and this thread gets pulled through here too, that judgment is coming. You could read uh, verse, where is it, verse 47. He says that if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. If you read there, stop at that period, you could think, man, I'm good. Like, I don't have judgment awaiting me. That would be an enormous accident and mistake and failure on your part because if you read the next sentence, he says, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. This is talking about when he'll return again. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. And there's, there's, this, there's this truth that you see in this text, and we've seen it in this whole chapter, that when you have received light, when you've received the truth, when you've been told you are a sinner, and Christ came into this world to live for you and to die upon the cross, taking your sins upon himself so that they might be released from you. And when you are told the truth that he was raised from the dead and offers you eternal life, and you reject that, which some of us in this room are doing. When you reject that, you are not off the hook. You have a judge. And it's like Jesus is saying, mark my words. Like there is judgment that is coming for all those who don't believe in me. And we've seen Jesus say that over and over and over again. And so that thread gets pulled through. But you see throughout it all that the Lord Jesus is still inviting all people to come to him in faith. He's inviting all people, even those of us who have have been rejecting him, those of us who have heard thousands of sermons and refused to bow our knee to him, who've read the whole Bible and are embarrassed to proclaim it. Like people who have the hardest of hearts, Jesus still says, believe in me and you can have eternal life. If you turn to him, you will be healed. That's what verse 40 is saying, that, that if your heart will change and you will come to him in repentance and faith, he will heal you. He will bring you eternal life. And so that's the, the paradox that we feel, that the Lord is hardening people, and he has every right to, particularly when we've been rejecting him already. But you see the Lord Jesus to his fellow Jews and to us now extending an invitation to all of us. That if you will believe in me, you will receive eternal life. That's how he started the passage, right? Believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And I would say to us who are already believers, I was thinking of this, it is not our prerogative to think that anyone is so hardened and so blinded 
that we did not need to take the gospel to them. As they had their chance, kind of wipe my hands clean of them, and the Lord's heart in their heart and blind their eyes. Because Jesus is saying to blind people and people, he's actively hardening. He's still saying, turn to me, and if you will, I will heal you. And it's not our prerogative to hold the gospel to ourselves and think that we don't share it with those who've been hardened. We still take it to them because if they are, we don't know who those people are. We don't know what the Lord has for them, but if they are to be healed, it will be by the coming of the gospel to them. That is the tool that the Spirit of God will use in their hearts if he's going to use it. And we ought to be people who tell people till the day that they die. Think of Patty. I told you about last week. Right before she died, she had been on this path towards destruction and had heard the gospel over and over and over and had rejected it. But at the end of her life, she came to faith because her brother and others told her the good news. And the Spirit of God melted her heart. There's, there's a saying that the, the same heat can hardened clay and melt wax. And that gospel, when it came to her that time, melted her heart, and God gave her faith, and now she's a recipient of eternal life. And we ought to never hold the gospel back from people, no matter how hardened they are. We need to tell them again and again, because that is how Jesus did till the day that he died and commands us to do. People, each of us, are responsible for how we respond to Christ. No one can say on the last day, well, you hardened me. How can you judge me? Like Jesus says that every one of us has a judge. And every one of us has this offer to us of salvation and forgiveness that comes through Christ. And if you have never put your faith in Christ, if you have never bent your knee to Jesus as a sinner saying, please forgive me, I would invite you to do so today. Like if the Lord is stirring in your heart a brokenness over your sin, saying, this is me, like I've rejected him. I have felt in a sense like it's hardening in me. But today I feel this desire to believe. I say, believe upon him. I put your trust in him today. Because there's this reality that when we repeatedly reject him, that hardening can come. Alexander McLaren said this. He said that rejected light is the parent of densest darkness. Like when we keep rejecting the light, there's a real sense in which the Lord may uh, harden us and blind us. And if you are seeing the light today, if you're seeing uh, what the Lord has done for you and you have a stirring upon your heart, cry out to him. We'll have Pastor Rod and Jan here after we sing, his wife Jan, after we uh, sing a closing song. They would love to pray with you and talk with you about how to do that. I would love this. Any, any of our members in this church would love to talk to you about how to do that. And you can be a son of light, a daughter of light. You can be a recipient of eternal life. No matter how hard your heart was as you entered into this room, you can leave with a heart that has been melted and that, that loves the Lord and that is a recipient of eternal life. So this is the end of the book of signs. And we see this tension here of the Lord hardening some but inviting all to believe in his son. I hope that this propels us forward in the weeks ahead to see chapters 13 and that follow where Jesus is really intently investing in his disciples, calling them into certain ways of living and ways of life. But we can look forward to that next week.